Good morning, church. You're all very welcome. If you're very you're new as well here today, you're double welcome. If you want to open up your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. So as we get into it, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. And Lord, you know, Lord, as we learned last week, God, the Pharisees, they, they studied the scriptures because they taught they had life, but they refused to come to you. Jesus, as we study your word, God, may we be drawn into a deeper love and devotion, a life of service and obedience to you, Lord God. Jesus, you have paid it all on the cross for us. You have made it so, so simple, Lord, for us to come before our Father. You have, you have saved us by your grace, God. May we respond in obedience to you, Lord, as we study your word. God, we pray for our kids. We pray, Lord God, that you would um, reveal yourself to them as they learn about the conversion of the Apostle Paul this week. Um, as they learned that you can take the worst of sinners, Lord, and transform them into a child of God by your grace. May they know, Lord, that the gospel is for them too. And God, may they believe and receive what you have done, Jesus. And Father, as we go into this time, Lord, we recognize we are, we are in health, Lord. We are in a, a good place, God, but we recognize, Lord, there are many people in our country suffering today, Lord. And God, we pray in particular for the people of County Donegal and just the tragedy that's occurred there this weekend, Lord. We pray, God, for the families who've lost lives, God, that you comfort them, that they would know the hope of the gospel. Jesus, you said you are the resurrection and the life, and that we may die. If we die in you, we will live. I pray, Lord, they would know the hope of the resurrection. They would come to know you, God. And I pray for your church in Donegal, God, that you would use them as a light in that place right now, that they would bring the comfort and the hope that is found in you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you meet us here today? Would you teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's read our text together. We only have four verses, so you might as well go through that together. Galatians 2, verse 11. Paul says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is God's word. So today's portion of scripture, and um, we're continuing on in our talk. We took a break last week and we looked at, um, started looking at our series on the fundamentals of our church. We're back in the book of Galatians and we're continuing on Paul's train of thought from Galatians chapter one. And we're in Galatians chapter one, Paul builds a case for the, the independence of his gospel. Two weeks ago, we studied uh, the very first 10 verses of Galatians 2, and we saw that Paul uh, took a journey from Antioch to the city of Jerusalem. You recall that he left the city and they made a journey um, to deliver a financial gift to the church in Jerusalem because they were um, suffering from poverty and because of a coming famine that was going to come upon the land that Agabus prophesied in the book of Acts. And Paul tells us that as he and Barnabas embark on this journey, um, Paul took a man you might recall named Titus along with him. And Titus wasn't a Jew. Titus was a Greek believer in Jesus. He was a Gentile. And here was Paul bringing this 
Greek man into Jerusalem, into the very center of uh, Judaism, with his intention of presenting both his gospel and the fruit of his gospel, Titus, uh, to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Paul wanted to make sure that the, um, the message he had been proclaiming these last 14 years to the churches of Galatia and the surrounding area, that it wasn't in contradiction with the message that was preached in Jerusalem. And so as Paul goes to Jerusalem and as he presents again his gospel, the message of Jesus to, to the apostles, to, to, to James and to John, to Peter, we see that they were in 100% agreement. They recognized the call on Paul's life to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul says they added absolutely nothing to the gospel and they gave him the right hand of fellowship. They, they, they supported him in his goal of bringing the gospel um, to the world. And so it was all good between them, right? It was all gravy. Like, there, were, there, were, there was peace between them. But what we learned was that this meeting did not come without resistance. Paul tells us that as he was meeting with the, these church leaders in private, um, opposition came into the church through the form, he calls them these, these false brothers who would come in, he says, to spy out our, our freedom. The, these people were the, the circumcision party that we learned of uh, two weeks ago. They wanted to bring Christians back under the law of Moses. That in order to become a Christian, you first had to do a certain work. You had to devote yourself to the law. You had to be circumcised. You had to live like a Jew. And only when you did those things could you ever become a, a, a Christian. And Paul says they wanted to circumcise Titus. Now, thankfully for Titus, they, they didn't. And Paul says, not for one moment did he give in to these people for the sake of the gospel. So Paul had this, this opposition and he had this convictory over these false Christians. We learned that to bring one group of Christians into, into slavery, um, to, to add anything to our faith bar a simple message of trust and belief in the work that Jesus has done, is to add a it's to add a burden to us all. If I say you have to live a certain way and then you can receive Jesus' grace, then that means all of us have to do it. And that is adding something to the gospel. That is corrupting the gospel. That is making it a gospel of works of what we must do for God rather than what Jesus has done for us. And so Paul made a stand for the gospel. As we look over the next two weeks in our studies, what we see is that there will come times in our faith where we too must be ready to make a stand for the gospel. And this is because the gospel, the Christian life, is not always a life of peace. It's not always a life that is free from conflict. We see this throughout the scriptures time and time again. There are examples of, of men and women who have to make a stand um, for God. And what we see is that when they make a stand for the Lord, when they, 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 they stand in that gap, God does an amazing work through them. Uh, we looked at one place in our men's group yesterday. In the men's study, we looked in uh, 2 Samuel, and we're studying um, the book about David's mighty men. And there was a man there named Shammah, and it's in 2 Samuel 2, verse 23. I want to read it to you. It says to him, and next to him was Shammah the son of Agi the Haratite. 
The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And what did the Lord do? The Lord worked a great victory. So Shammah, in a moment when Israel is being overrun by its enemies, he makes a stand. He could have kept running like the rest of them, but he doesn't. He makes a stand, and because of this stand, because of this one act of faithfulness, we see the Lord brings about a great victory. And something of the same effect is happening in Galatians 2 this morning. In Galatians 2, we see that the influence of these false Christians, this false doctrine is winning over in the church of Antioch. And there is this moment where the enemy seems to be triumphing. And if the false doctrine of the Jewish circumcision party was winning over. And so Paul needs to make a stand. And he does this stand for Jesus and for his people. And as he does this, we see God brings about a great work. What happens is the truth of the gospel is preserved. And with this truth comes the freedom. The freedom of being able to know God without any burden by our faith in Christ. The freedom that you and I get to experience today. And so this morning as we study this text, we see a few different things. We see the power of influence. and um, How our leadership, good and bad, will impact those around us. We see why we must stand for God's truth, and we see the motivation to stand. Because one thing we see in this text is, you know, there's always a, we can tend to fall into a, a dem and us mentality. The enemy is out there. The enemy is out to get us. But what happens in Antioch today is the enemy is actually in the church. It's even sometimes our friends. And so if we want to stand for the gospel, even when it costs us something, we need to be prepared. And so look at verse 11 with me. We see here again, Paul says he, need to make, he needed to make a stand. He needed to oppose someone in Antioch. But as we, we see there, the person he's standing against might come as a bit of a surprise. He says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So like, uh-oh, compared to what we just read in verses one, looked at in verses 1 to 10, what is going on here? Again, in the very first opening section of Galatians 2, Paul makes this stand against the circumcision party, but now he's facing off against Peter. Peter, the man who just gave him the right hand of fellowship. Peter, who along with James and John agreed with the gospel and added no extra weight to it. What is going on? What, what has happened in the space of one or two verses? So let's back up. It seems that sometime after the events of Acts chapter 11, when Paul and Barnabas and Titus go to Jerusalem, that Peter, upon hearing the great work that is happening in Antioch, he makes his way down to this city to have fellowship with the church. And either because it's the Lord's Day and they're having a feast, or maybe they, they threw a party because Peter had come to town. We say they are all eating together. You know, we, we eat a meal, sometimes by ourselves, sometimes with our family, but meals in the early church had a great significance about them. When the church ate together, it wasn't just for a meal. They would have, yes, their, you know, their agape feasts, their love feasts, but they would come together and they would break bread together. 
they would take communion as one people, one body, remembering the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on their behalf. And when they came to the table, when they broke bread, there was no Jew, there was no Greek, there was no circumcised, uncircumcised, law or free, male or female. It was just all those who were found in Christ. It's a little glimpse of what we got to do last week when we took communion together. You know, we take it all as one body, one family, and it's a beautiful thing. The, the, the communion table is beautiful. Now, apparently, Paul wasn't at this feast when it began. He was late to the party. But what we see is upon his arrival, something had gone down during this feast that needed to be sorting out. And it seems that the blame of all of this trouble lay at the, the feet of Peter, the, you know, the most senior leader there, the, the one we often see as the, the chief of the apostles. And so in the middle of the family feast, for lack of a better word, Paul, he stands up and he makes a stand against Peter. He says in verse 11, Peter stood condemned. So what exactly did Peter do? Well, we continue in verse 12. It says, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, it's important as we go into this, we don't spend our entire morning like bashing on Peter. We tend to do that because Peter often appears as kind of gung-ho guy in the Bible. And it would be really easy to, to be harsh on him right now, with Nick about what he's doing. But, you know, who among us hasn't at some point betrayed what we claim to believe because of a sinful motivation? But we need to remember the seriousness of what is happening here. So when it comes to the feast, Paul says that Peter, he was eating with the Gentiles. And remember, as we learned, Jews did not eat with Gentiles. The Jews, those who, the Jews in particular who didn't believe in Jesus, they saw the Gentiles as the outsiders. They were to be looked down on. They were unclean. And the Gentiles didn't have the washing, the ceremonial washing of the Jews. And they ate food the Jews didn't eat, like, like pork. And they even ate fat on their food. A Jewish person couldn't eat fat. And so a Jew would not sit and eat with a Gentile um, out of fear of becoming unclean by association. But Peter, Peter knew different. See, in Acts chapter 10, 11, um, the Lord shows us how he used Peter to usher Gentiles into the church. In Acts 10, Peter is staying in the house, I think, Simon the Tanner in Joppa on the coast of the Mediterranean. And Peter, he has this vision on top of his house. And the Lord appears to him, and as this big blanket comes down with all these animals that by the Jewish law were unclean. And Jesus says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, Lord, no, far be it from me. I am a Jew. I have never eaten anything unclean. What does Jesus say? You know, what I have made called clean, do not call unclean or uncommon. Jesus gave this vision to Peter two more times. And Peter tells us that as he is having this vision, a Gentile man named Cornelius happens to knock on the door. And Peter recognizes this is the Lord working. And so Peter, he preaches to um, Cornelius in this house of Gentiles. And it tells us in Acts chapter 11, Peter says, um, he's speaking in Jerusalem now because he's getting criticized for what he's done. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just on us, us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. After this miracle of Gentiles becoming part of the church, Peter, he went back to Jerusalem and he found the very same opposition that Paul found. The circumcision party was saying, what are you doing eating with Gentiles? And Peter, he stands up for the Gentiles and he stands up for the truth of God's word. And so knowing the truth, when Peter comes to Antioch, he has no problem sitting down and having a meal with Gentiles. But Paul tells us that at some point during the feast, um, the party was crashed by men that came from James, which he calls the circumcision party. And again, remember, these men, they did not consider Gentile Christians real Christians because they did not follow the law. They were not circumcised. They didn't obey the Sabbath and all the different ceremonial commands. They ate meat that was sacrificed to idols. They ate meat with blood in it. They didn't follow the Jewish law. And they would have been highly offended at the sight of any Jew eating with a Gentile, eating with those, those people. And it's interesting that after both Peter and Paul confront these men in Jerusalem, their influence doesn't just like diminish into non-existence. At this point in Galatians, it seems their influence is growing to where this false teaching is having some kind of hold over the church in Jerusalem. So much so, in fact, that when Peter hears the circumcision party have arrived at the town, he gets up from that table with the Gentiles and he goes somewhere else. He sits at a different table. He has, he has separated himself from the Gentiles. And Paul uses that word separation rather deliberately. Remember, the Pharisees and the Jews, they separated themselves from Gentiles, those that they considered to be unclean and unsaved and outside of the community, the people of God. Peter was treating these Gentiles, these brothers and sisters, as if they weren't Christians at all. And though at one point Peter's message, his proclamation was rather clear, we are saved by the you know, grace, through, grace by faith through Jesus, that the same Holy Spirit that fell on the Jews fell on the Gentiles by God's grace. Peter's actions now are preaching an even louder message. How he is living his life as a Christian is speaking far greater right now than how he preached in the past. And he is saying that these Christians are not really Christians at all because they are not obeying the law. And like, that's a really heavy thought. Like, this isn't just Peter, Peter who, you know, was scared of the servant girl outside of the, the high priest's house. This is Peter who filled the Holy Spirit, stands up against the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, and proclaims that Christ is the Messiah and that Christ is king. You know, this, uh, someone like that at this point can be brought so low. Peter compromised here on the truth of the gospel. He was acting inconsistent with what he proclaimed. And we ask why? Fear. It was fear. Paul says he feared the circumcision party, and this is why he acted this way. Begs the question, what kind of power and influence do these people have over the church in Jerusalem? We don't know. 
But something about this group had such an influence over Peter, he was willing in this moment to forsake the gospel and to forsake his brothers and sisters, and it was all because of fear. So we need to talk about this fear and how fear can lead to compromise. Now, here is the thing with this idea of fear. The Bible does not always speak of fear in the same way. Uh, Fear can be seen as a negative thing, and fear can be seen as a positive thing in the scriptures. It just depends on which way that fear is pointing, where that fear is pointing to. So we have a contrast in the scriptures between the fear of man and the fear of the Lord. And it is the fear of man that leads to compromise in Peter's life and leads to compromise in our life. It is a negative thing. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So the, the, proverb, the, the, the speaker in the Proverbs says that the fear of man is a snare. And in the Hebrew, that's like, you know, like a net that kind of just traps you and stops you from moving, but also like a hook, like a barbed hook for you, for you fishermen out there. Something that like attaches into your flesh and for you to pull this thing out causes so much pain, you just leave it there. You know, it traps you, it stops you from going anywhere. And that's the kind of fear, guys, that we must resist if we are wanting to stand for the Lord Jesus. Paul tells Timothy to not give in to this fear when he's encouraging him in 2 Timothy to, to pursue his ministry. In 2 Timothy 1, Paul writes to him saying, no, Timothy, keep going in the ministry. Grow in your giftings. Do not give up. You know, don't give in to the fear of man. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. He says again, for this reason, I remind you, 2 Timothy 1, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. He says in verse 7, for God gave us not a, a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul warned Timothy not to give into fear, that God has not given us a spirit of fear towards men, but of power, love, and self-control. Yet this is the very fear that Peter fell into, and he is trapped in this fear. How do we avoid this? How do we avoid being trapped by fear that leads to compromise and a rejection of what we know is the truth? But it's that other fear. It's that positive fear. It is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. So this phrase, the fear of the Lord, is is mentioned a lot in the Bible. If you have an ESV Bible, it's mentioned about 27 times. And it's always spoken as this positive thing that brings you life and blessing anyone who practices a fear of God isn't led into a snare. Proverbs 14, 27 says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. And so rather being a fear that leads us into submission and being trapped, God's word says the fear of the Lord brings freedom. It is like a fountain of water that refreshes us and gives us life. Now, the question is, which one do you want to choose? Who do you want to fear? Is it man or do you want to fear God? And maybe that's a question we need to look at as we examine Peter's fear. Is there an area in your life right now where the fear of man is causing you to compromise? It might be how you behave in your household, maybe at work, maybe at school, maybe at a club, like a sports club. 
Is there a fear of man in you that is leading you to compromise on your faith? Are we allowing ourselves to believe the lie that what people think about us is more important than what God thinks about us? And that's it, isn't it? When we were at the men's study, uh, Dirk used a great phrase that we need to have an audience of one. Who are we trying to please? Whose opinion really matters? Is it, is it what I think or is it what you think or is it what those outside this church think? Or is it the Lord and what he thinks about you and about me? Who do you want to please? And can I remind you, there is a promise in scripture that if we make a stand for Jesus, if we acknowledge Jesus before men, he says he will acknowledge us before our father. There is a blessing when we choose to stand for Jesus. And so before we go to our last two verses, I want to read from you. You can turn there if you want. It's Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. In Matthew 10, verse 26, Jesus addresses this whole issue of fear, of, you know, who should we fear, especially as he is sending his disciples out to proclaim the message of the kingdom. You know, in the face of those who would do him harm, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 26, have no fear of them, you know, that fear of man, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, that's man, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. There is a, a blessing, there is an honoring that comes from choosing to stand for Jesus, to acknowledge him before men, to stand up for the truth of the gospel. And if we want to make that stand like Paul had to, we need to ask the question for each one of us, who are we going to fear? Now, as we move into verse 13, we see that giving into fear and making the wrong kind of stand, it doesn't just impact you and your walk with the Lord. It will impact those around us as well. Paul says in verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So again, Peter's actions did not just impact him. They impacted all of the Jews that were around him. Paul says that because of the hypocrisy that was found in Peter, the, the, the Jews followed suit. And I don't believe this is just talking about the Jews that might have come to Antioch with Peter. This is the Jews in the church of Antioch. Like, like a church split was literally happening over a feast between Jews and Gentiles. They were separating themselves from their brothers and sisters, saying, guys, you're, sorry, you're actually not Christians. We're, we're over here. We're the Jews. We have the law. We have this cultural standard. We, we have this ethnicity. We are the righteous ones. You are not. So they're brothers and sisters dividing over, over the law. And it says it got so bad that even Barnabas was led astray, and he separated himself. And guys, Barnabas was a teacher in Antioch. He was one of their teachers. He was one of their leaders. 
He no doubt preached the gospel to those Gentiles there. He no doubt baptized some of them. He had communion with them. He ate with them. And he said to them, you know, you're not a Christian. He separated himself from them. Like it's, it's, it's madness. Peter says they were being hypocrites. Hypocrites. Now a hypocrite isn't someone who preaches a standard and fails to practice it. That makes you a failure, but it doesn't make you a hypocrite. The idea of a hypocrite here in the Bible is an actor, someone who puts on a mask, someone who is pretending something. They're acting. And the Jews here, they were acting. They knew the Gentiles were saved by grace apart from the law. They had seen the work of God. In fact, these Jewish Christians no doubt lived in the exact same way as Gentiles, free from the law of Moses. But now they're acting like these Gentiles weren't saved and pretending they needed to obey the law to be saved. And guys, it's not too hard to see how that kind of a parallel of how this can creep into the church today. You know, when a fear of man comes, grips a hold of us, that we can suddenly act contrary to what we know is right. It could be maybe a cultural standard we put on the gospel saying, if you want to be a Christian, you have to look this way and act this way and speak this way. It could be a language thing. It could be the issue of alcohol. It could be the issue of dress and appearance. It could be what you eat. You know, you are a hypocrite if you enjoy the freedom of the gospel, but then put away on others that you don't put on yourself as something that needs to be avoided. Peter didn't avoid it. And what we see here is that there is a weight that comes with leadership. And bad leadership impacts others. Uh, There's one commentator, Pastor David Guzik. He has a commentary on Galatians. He says this. This shows us what a heavy responsibility it is to be a leader. When we go astray, others will often follow. Satan knew that if he could make Peter take the wrong path, then many others would follow him. And so leadership is important. But here's something we need to realize. Like, I'm not the only leader in this church. All of you, to some capacity, are a leader. John Maxwell wrote a book on leadership. He says, leadership is, is, is influence. Nothing more and nothing less. Being a leader isn't about being a boss who tells people to do things and not to do certain things. Leaders are the kind of people who influence people to go a certain direction. Like as a leader in this church, my job is to point you and influence you to follow Jesus and to obey the scriptures and to live a life devoted to God. But all of you, but if that's, if that's really the core of influence, it's some, of leadership, it's influence. All of you to some degree have some influence over another person. Again, it might be your home, it might be in your work, it might be in your school, it might be your social peers, but you're all leaders to some extent. And so we must realize the impact of our leadership. As Christians, we are leaders. We are God's ambassadors. We are his representatives on earth. Look what happens with bad leadership in the church. Peter's leadership in this moment led to people partaking in hypocrisy. And again, if we want to be a church that is free from hypocrisy and compromising on the gospel, then we must be a church, like we learned last week, that doesn't find its core and its identity out of the fear of man, But it comes from being a church that is founded, again, as we learned last week, on Jesus and his words. Jesus says in Luke 6, 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. So who are we going to let teach us? Who is the one leading us and influencing us? And each one of us are being influenced again by someone, and we are influencing someone. 
And so that's the question that must be answered. If we want to make a stand for the gospel, if we want to lead people away from compromise, away from hypocrisy, and to stand in the truth, who are we going to let teach us? Who will be our master? Because we must become devoted to Jesus. We must become his disciples. He must be our teacher. And we must be people who are influenced by him and his leadership and his example, because Jesus had the greatest example of leadership, of humility, and of faithfulness. And Jesus didn't have to come to the world to, to, to die for us. We were away from God. We deserved everything we were getting. But Jesus stepped into the world, born as a man, living that perfect life, and he willingly went to the cross. He was faithful until the very end. Because of his faithfulness, his obedience to God, his sacrifice, him doing what was right and standing in the truth, we reap the benefits of the gospel because of our glorious Savior, our perfect example of faithfulness. So we have a pretty crazy situation here, right? On one side, there is the circumcision party with Peter, with Barnabas, and with all the Jews. And on the other side, we have the Gentiles who have just been rejected by their brothers and sisters. And in the middle of these two parties stands Paul. And what is Paul going to do upon seeing this? But Paul tells us again in verse 11 that he withstood Peter. He opposed him to his face publicly because his sin was public and he rebukes him for his actions. And next week we're going to see in verses 15 to 21 this amazing like speech that Paul gives to Peter and the Jews about how we are saved by grace, how it is all down to the work of Jesus. But we see Paul beginning this in verse 14. In verse 14, he, he makes this rebuke to Peter. He says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I, I love Paul's approach here. Like, it's, it's, it's very intelligent. Like, he could have just gone and said, Peter, you, you're a hypocrite. You, you, you fake, you compromiser of the gospel. He could have, you know, just gun blazing with names. But instead, Paul asks Peter a question that had a lasting impact. He looks like, Peter, I don't quite understand. How come you expect these Gentiles to live like Jews when you live like a Gentile? How can you say don't eat bacon, Peter, when you probably eat bacon? Like, I don't, maybe he didn't say that part, but like, that's the idea. It's like, how can you Act this way and tell them to do something else. When you're doing the very same thing, when you know this is true and what you're preaching is a lie, how can you live, force them to live like a Jew when you live like a Gentile, Peter? And you can imagine the face on the circumcision party when they heard this. You're like, what? Like, Peter doesn't obey the law? Peter eats with Gentiles? It would have stopped all pretense on his part. And so as we wrap up this morning, I want us to notice two things here. Why Paul confronted Peter? What led him to this? And then what was the fruit of this? Because again, you know, there can be that fear in us to, for confrontation. Some of us love a good fight and some of us run away from any kind of conflict. But again, there are times when we need to stand for the truth of the gospel. And so, you know, what will be the result of standing for the truth? What we see here, Paul makes a stand because of the gospel itself. 
It's a very similar situation to what happened with Titus. Again, with Titus, they wanted him to be circumcised, and Paul was a circumcised man. He could have easily, again, as he said, he could have said, it's your problem, Titus, you deal with it. But Paul did not shrink back, despite what happened here. And he very, again, he very easily could have. Look who he's standing against. He's standing against Peter. He's standing against his friend Barnabas. And at this point, it's very early in Paul's ministry. He wasn't a great missionary to Europe or the writer of the New Testament. He was Saul who had persecuted the church. And yet he makes a stand because he sees that the truth of the gospel was at stake. Paul says that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so for Paul to do nothing in this situation would have meant that the gospel was something very different than what we know it really is. It would have become a compromised gospel. It would have become a gospel of of works, a gospel, a good news about what you have done rather than what Jesus Christ has done for you. And so it was that passion of Paul, not just for God's people, but for the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel, the purity of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for sinners, that drove him to do this. And Paul knew that the truth of knowing Jesus far outweighed anything else in this life. There was nothing that could be offered to him that would have made him step down from this stand, taking this stand. And this is something Paul makes clear time and time again. Paul constantly lets us know, I think of Philippians, where he's saying he was willing to forsake everything he had for the sake of knowing Jesus. There is something with Paul, there is something about knowing Jesus, there is something so beautiful about Jesus, something so awe-inspiring, something so just godly, because he is God, about Jesus. And they Paul say, you know, you can have all the world, but give me Jesus. But Paul was willing to live for him and die for him. He knew that having him was having everything. Nothing could come close to having him. Guys, it is that passion for knowing Jesus, if we actually have a passion and a love for our Lord that will drive us to want to stand up for his truths. It's having, again, that love for him so we can echo the same words of those songs. You can have the world, but give me Jesus. I think it's something we need to grow in. We can all grow in this. Our devotion, our love, our dedication to Jesus. And let me tell you this, as Paul said it, he is worth it, guys. He is worth giving it all up for knowing him. And if we put him first, if we make a stand for him, there will be good fruit. Your effort will not be in vain. There was good fruit for Paul. Because what was the impact of Paul's defense of the gospel here? What impact did it have on Peter? Well, we know that it saved the church in Antioch. And it had such an impact on Peter that when we get to Acts 15, Peter now defends the message of Paul. Peter defends the Gentiles. He defends the purity of the gospel. And we get to walk in the freedom and the joy and the beauty of the gospel today because these men took a stand. And we too get to do that for future generations. We get to stand for the gospel. Peter says in Acts 15:10, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But as we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will be as well. 
Peter now stood for the very gospel message that he is going against because of the stand of Paul. Paul's act of faithfulness, his standing for the gospel, led Peter again to stand for the gospel, which led the early church to stand for the gospel, which led the men and women throughout the ages who knew and loved the Lord to stand for the gospel, and allows us to stand and walk in the freedom of the gospel too. Because the Lord wants us to become men and women who are faithful. Men and women who will stand for him, just like Shama, just like Paul, and eventually just like Peter. And if we do this, if we allow him to work in us as we stand for him, he will bring about a great victory. Amen? Amen. We're going to go into a time of worship where Isabella and the team will lead us in a few more songs. And as we do, this is a time of response where we get to just think upon the message that we have heard today. Where do our loyalties lie? Whose opinion, guys, do we care about at the end of the day? Is it Jesus? Is it God? Is it the, the triune God? Or is it the opinion of man? Who do we fear? Who do we want to please? And who are we living for? As we do that, as we respond to the Lord, we have the table in the back this week where you can partake in communion. If you're a Christian, you get to remember the, the bread, of, you know, the body of Christ broken for you. You get to remember the blood of Christ that was poured out to wash you white as snow. And we get to do that in celebration of our Lord. So if you're a Christian today, um, take communion. It is there for you. And if you need prayer, um, I will be in the back. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you once again, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the truth of the gospel, Jesus, that we are saved by grace through faith. Lord, there is nothing that we could add to your work. So Lord, help us to not take away God from your work. Help us to never, Lord, compromise the truth of the gospel, the truth of salvation, the truth, Jesus, of who you are and what you have done. Lord, I want us to become a people who are brave, a people who are willing to stand for you, a people, Jesus, who are sold out for you and the gospel, who recognize that knowing you, Lord, knowing you is worth giving up everything, Lord. We thank you, God, that you've given us the Holy Spirit to change us and to shape us into the image of Jesus. So, Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would mold us, God, you would reveal to us, Lord, the areas maybe that we need to change, those weaknesses, remind us of the grace of God and help us to walk in the freedom that we have gotten, Lord. And Lord, as we look at a world, God, that is becoming more and more divided and us into factions and brother rising up against brother, mother against son, daughter against mother and father, as we see people dividing, God, would you bind us together? Would we be united in you, Jesus, in the unity that you have given us through the gospel? Lord, you have taken down that wall of hostility. Lord, may we never build it back up. So we worship you now, God. We worship you that we have the freedom to come before your throne and sing to our Father in heaven. God, would you be glorified through our lives and through our praises. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.